Hello everyone, welcome to the Bharat Law Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Kazvi. In today's episode, I have with me Barrister Shahrukh Iftikhar, partner at Emir Bilal Sufi & Co., a law firm based in Islamabad. Shahrukh heads the Corporate Commercial International Trade and International Arbitration Practice at the firm. He is an advocate of the High Court of Pakistan. He's a fellow member of the Foreign Qualified Lawyers Committee at the Islamabad High Court Bar Association. Hi, Shahrukh. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Hi, Sarah. Um, I'm very good. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, I've heard a lot about your podcast. And hopefully uh, there is some manner in which I can contribute to them and contribute positively to some young lawyers out there. Absolutely. So today, Shahrukh, I wanted to basically talk to you about one of your areas of practice, which is trade law. Keeping in mind that most of our listeners are young lawyers from Pakistan and law students that are thinking about, you know, specializing in any area. So I thought it would be great to, you know, have you on uh, and introduce the practice area to our listeners. So let's first start with your qualification and how you started your law career. Um, I know that after your law degree, you went for your bar. Can you first tell us what your reasons were for wanting to qualify as a barrister after your law degree? So, Sarah, I essentially uh, went out, uh, went to England for my uh, degree initially. I went for my LLB honors. I went to the University of Hull. Uh, when I finished my degree, of course, like any other young aspiring lawyer, I had multiple options before me. Uh, the three options which are available to lawyers are either doing the LPC, which is a legal practitioner's course. Uh, the second option was bar. At, at our time, it was called the bar professional training course. And the last option was uh, doing a master's uh, in law. When I was making that decision, one, I, I, I've been very clear since um, I started my legal education that I always wanted to be a barrister. I know this will sound a bit cliche, but I wanted to follow the footsteps of Kaide Azam. Uh, it was very, it's a very inspiring story for me. Uh, but beyond being inspiring for me, uh, I had the opportunity of working in Pakistan when I used to be free for my summer vacations. I was also working throughout Bath. What I realized was when I came back to Pakistan and I was coming back in my summer break, uh, there, there, was, there was a recognition of a particular breed of lawyers. So in Pakistan, there's a particular breed of lawyers that is recognized. And... Um, the treatment of such lawyers was very different. It was much more respectable. It was much more coherent. It was much, much more easier for people to understand that you are a lawyer. And I, I it was always attached. It was always uh, seen as being a barrister. So if you were a barrister, uh, you were being recognized better as a lawyer. And uh, that was also one of the reasons why I decided to become a barrister. One of the last considerations I had was I, I practically looked into what would be my curriculum if I decided to do bar? Uh, by curriculum, of course, I mean, what kind of subjects would I be doing? What kind of training? Because the course itself had the word training in it. So I was very intrigued as in our LLB, which is a purely academic degree. There is no level of training. You're never being trained. So uh, me going and doing law clinic or me doing moots is not really training per se. Uh, you know, there, there's no exam at the end of it. Uh, when I went through the curriculum, I realized that the curriculum was broken down into multiple portions. And part and parcel of those portions, one of those portions was um, legal training in courts. So legal training in courts was broken down into civil advocacy and criminal advocacy. Uh, I had heard about something called cross-examination and examination in chief. 
but I had never practically gone through it other than in going through it informally in the mood process. That was one of the most uh, triggering factors for me that I felt this, this seems like a complete degree or this seems like a complete course because not only are they going to offer me an academic background where I will be studying subjects like the civil litigation, criminal litigation, I will be studying ADR, but I will also get an opportunity to implement them and get some practice of how real life is going to be. So real life as a lawyer would incorporate you going to courts or you sitting in a meeting or you sitting in a conference with clients. And I felt this was the greatest composite that I could find in a degree. Uh, the reason why I turned down not doing LPC was that uh, LPC wouldn't, would create another lineage for me, which was being a solicitor. Now, solicitors are very well recognized in England and Wales. But again, in Pakistan, I felt there was no legal recognition for solicitors and people didn't really understand the difference between lawyers, advocates, solicitors, barristers. And I felt that the training that I would get would not surpass the training I was getting in PPTC. Lastly, I also considered doing an LLM. I think LLM, this, this is an age-old debate um, between doing LLM and, of course, doing bar. In LLM, I felt it's a continuation of my academic degree. Because again, what I would be doing is getting no legal training per se. I will not be trained in advocacy. I will not be trained in drafting. I will not be trained in opinion writing, but I will be trained in specializing in a particular area of law. So your LLM can be a general LLM or it can be an LLM in energy. It can be an LLM in oil and gas. It can be an LLM in any given subject, telecom. You can, there, there's a multitude of subjects that you can take up. Uh, I felt that I've gone through my academic stage and what I now need to be well-versed with the system or to be well incorporated into the system uh, is the need to do a degree which is going to position me in the right place when I have to go to court or is going to position me in the right place when I have to sit across the table from a corporate client. And that is why uh, I went through this entire process. I was very glad I was able to do so. And uh, I felt it was one of the most satisfying experiences I had as a lawyer uh, to be able to attend bar school. So um, I have a lot of respect for bar school, but this again does not mean that people are not supposed to go for LLM. LLM is fantastic. Yeah. What school? What school did you go to? Uh, I attended City University London for. Okay. My Same. Yes. City graduate. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you're yeah you're you're right about this debate. I mean, um, you know, I teach law, so a lot of my students ask me this. But I always say that there is no objective answer. Everybody's reasons are different, which is why it's good to ask people what were your reasons. Um, I think I would say my reasons were a little similar. Um, you know, I just I was obsessed with going back to the U.S. and doing my LLM, and I like first two years, that was the plan. I'm going to go for my LLM. I even had sort of sorted out what specialization I was going to do. And I got to my third year and I was doing the external program. So I was doing the University of London International Program. And I got to my third year and I felt so unprepared for the profession. I'm like, what do lawyers actually do? I have no skills. I had done a couple of internships, but I don't think it really gave me an understanding. And law schools, you know, back then, very different. They were purely focused on academics. We didn't even have these moot competitions and mock trials, nothing, absolutely. So the only thing I knew about the bar was that they teach you how to practice law. And, you know, I looked at those skills, you know, the curriculum, and I was like, okay, I need this more than 
studying about like another another type of law so i also went for the bar purely because that's what i needed at that time i was like i need some skills i don't i've studied 12 subjects i don't even know what to do with these you know um so llm at that point even though that's what i had planned for but then i you know changed uh, in, in my last year um but yeah so coming back from the bar um where did you start working sharukh and what kind of practice areas or legal work were you introduced to in the beginning so sara when uh, i i came back in uh, 2013 uh, i was already working when uh, out of a law firm called hashmat habib law associates uh, who had a civil practice and they they were doing a lot of customs related work uh, i when i came back i wanted to apply to a new firm and uh, i applied to this firm called ria bakar jadet and i was very fortunate uh, to get in i was hired as an associate there uh, when i was hired uh, my first partner mr mazhar bangash was then uh, the head of international trade for riya and uh, that is where i got introduced to trade uh, as an area of practice for me but uh, it was a combination of not only international trade uh, but he was we were also being trained in corporate advisory corporate compliance and this multitude of areas which are which i had never come across uh, such as the oil and gas sector the energy sector the telecom sector uh, antitrust sector and there was a multitude of areas that that were being practiced there and i started my practice officially in international trade from there uh, i went on uh, for the next 5 to 6 years i i worked in riya and that was predominantly the area of practice that i had next to also uh, working in the telecom sector uh once i left riya i then have joined uh, abs and co which is also a firm placed out of istanbul and uh, i have been very fortunate to continue my practice uh, in trade law and um, a year ago uh, i was appointed as a national counsel for itc which is the international trade center of wto and from then i have been actively involved in advising the federal government and advising wto on multiple trade related scenarios and multiple trade related issues stemming from tariff barriers to non tariff barriers to rules of origin anti dumping and and so on when we talk about trade um you know just sort of my understanding is that there are so many different sectors you know it's whether it's agriculture or textile or chemicals or mining and so much more so which sector do you think really requires the legal trade expertise in in pakistan so uh, i would i would break this down and uh, you can pick up any sector because as soon as you say international trade um you you are bringing within the periphery of it um, every product or every service that can be marketed and sold and can be marketed and sold internationally or nationally but the the increasing trend that we see worldwide is that uh, i think one of the biggest products that is being or types of products that we generally tend to deal with when it comes to tariff and tariff rationalization so it's broken down into the metal sector there's a lot of trading in the metal sector worldwide there is a need for metal uh, it it is the base of industry in uh, any country that you want to pick up uh, the chemical sector is a very growing sector the paper sector um then of course agricultural trading uh, is very big which is necessity necessity trading that is happening as of recently uh, carbon trading is happening electricity trading is happening so uh, it doesn't depend it doesn't it's not confined to one type of product or one sector it's it's 
it's it's in everything uh, but certain industries are prevailing more than others uh, in terms of your export ratio there are certain types of products for example like metal which is being traded the most out of pakistan and uh, that is where you you need to essentially sit and see that what sector is really prevailing um, now another sector that has really come out and uh, it is the most talked about sector is uh, of course the it sector information and technology that is something the world is getting more technologically advanced day by day and there is a lot of trade in services uh, where you're bringing in professionals and professionals are going outside the country uh, to provide uh, these services one more sector uh, that i would want to speak about is intellectual property intellectual property rights um, whether it's copyrights whether it's patent whether it's industrial design it's 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 a very 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 able sector and a lot of companies are now becoming very um intelligent when it comes to protecting the intellectual property and they know how to lend the, the use of that property so all of these sectors when broken down whether they're broken down goods wise or services wise they're all on the rise okay so how would you categorize or explain the type of legal work that international trade includes okay so um, i i essentially would want to talk about um you know the premium organization or the apex body for uh, governing uh, trade disputes and uh, i would li- like to talk just a bit about the wto so just in terms of context for people who are listening uh, uh, post uh, 1947 so post the second world war uh, countries were of the resolution that wars are not happening based on the geographical needs of a country they're happening because of the economical and resource need of country countries don't want to now essentially take over the geography they don't want to take over land but they they are now invading or trying uh, to get into wars only so that they can take over the resources of a country whether it is minerals whether it is the oil or any other product for that sake so in 1947 there came out an agreement called the general agreement on tariffs and trade uh, whereby there was and subject to that agreement imf and world bank was also created just to regulate the trade sector in the world and to nominalize countries and to ensure trade facilitation and concessions that countries would be willing to provide to each other from 1947 up till 1995 15th april to be more specific there was multiple rounds of negotiations between member countries and the two most important rounds that came out of these negotiations where they were talking about trade concessions and trade facilitation and rules of origin uh were the uruguay round and the marrakesh round uh one which took out which was done in the 70s and the other one was done in 93 all of this all of these rounds of negotiations led to the creation of wto through the general agreement on tariffs and trade in 1994 the wto was constituted called the world trade organization and under the world trade organization multiple agreements were signed as commitments between countries in order to regulate or to facilitate international trade now from those agreements um, more specifically there there are three agreements that that took the lead which was gatt general agreement on tariffs and trade this agreement governed the trade of goods the second agreement was gatts which was the general agreement of trade in services and the third one is trips which was the general agreement on uh, intellectual property within these and then another thing that came out was dispute settlement the dsu and its understanding now under gatt 
uh, more specifically uh, with the context of pakistan there are uh, two articles of gat which are very important and have been applied or implemented in pakistan first of those articles was the article on anti dumping and another article is article 16 which is on uh, countervailing measures and safeguards uh, and article 22 of course on dispute settlement now with respect to just understanding the regime what happened was that agreements were made or guidelines were provided and then there were subsequent agreements on the understanding and implementation of those articles or such said agreements now if i take an example of article 6 which is on anti dumping what followed was that in 2000 pakistan we we are a dualism state which means that uh, a, a treaty is not directly applicable to us even if it has gone through the right process it needs to be ratified uh, or an agreement is not applicable on us until it has been ratified by an act of parliament so in 2000 uh, we drafted the anti dumping duties ordinance and subject to anti dumping duties rules and we created a body called the national tariff commission what this saw was the birth of a regulator in trade and before this there existed other bodies as well like like the tdap and i'm going to speak about some other bodies as well but the function of said bodies was to regulate trade remedy law and how do they regulate that they have the power of imposition of duties they can make they can make a recommendation to the federal government subject to an investigation uh that if a country is found dumping its products in pakistan at low prices and it is leading to the detriment of the domestic industry of that product in pakistan the national tariff commission has the power and the mandate to impose or to recommend duties to the federal government and the federal government through fbr is going to uh, uh, impose said duties part and parcel of this law is also the creation of tribunals which have been created so in the trade sector three, three bodies which are talked about the most are the national tariff commission the competition commission and the dgto the competition commission is a body which has been created to regulate competition laws or antitrust laws uh, now within that regime they are trying to control or regulate the market when it comes to certain practices by certain undertakings uh, when it comes to prohibited agreements or and creating a monopoly abusing a dominant market position and such and also creating a market which is regulating mergers and acquisitions if those mergers and acquisitions are over a prescribed limit uh, prescribed financial uh, line now within this the third one is the dgto which is the director general trade organization now the mandate of dgto is to regulate trade associations and chambers of commerce so in pakistan below the dgto there's a body called fpcci which is the federal chamber of pakistan uh, and underneath that there are then local chambers which are local to the city in which they exist and all of those chambers have been created for a particular sector if it's not a city chamber so there's karachi chamber of commerce lahore faisalabad you name it there there are multiple chambers uh parallel to this trade associations are being created where a group of individuals or a group of juristic individuals being companies or an association of persons get together and decide to represent a particular sector so uh, an example would be apma or aptma which was all pakistan paper mills association uh then psn a uh, uh, all pakistan national steel mills association and then there for every product there there exists these sort of associations 
Now, the interesting part is that all of them do require legal representation. Now, what do they require legal representation for? They require legal representation so that if an investigation is initiated against them, if they require facilitation and cooperation, if they require to acquire a license from our regulator for companies being the Securities and Exchange Commission, they, there are multiple stages where legal representation can come in, which can really factor into the progress of that chamber, that association, that trade body, or that individual company that is looking to protect its domestic interests. So all of them do tend to provide uh, a platform for lawyers where you can easily st stir yourself into. And uh, if, if you are interested in, in that level of practice, then there, there are a lot of roles that come in where you can provide legal representation because all of these bodies are statutory bodies, which means they are creation of statute. There is a law, there is a regime that can be implemented, that can be applied. And therefore, uh, I feel that the trade sector, there are other bodies as well, like the TDAP, Trade Development Authority. All of these bodies are generally coming under the wing of Ministry of Commerce, which is seen as the custodian for trade practices. And all of these bodies are existing under the mandate of the Ministry of Commerce, of course, being the federal body. Now comes the second stage, which is first stage is legal representation, where the process is not adversarial. But in all of these laws, jurisdiction has been given to special tribunals. So what has happened is within the jurisdiction of these laws, special tribunals have been made to adjudicate on special trade matters. Now, generally, judges uh, possess a very high legal acumen when it comes to the application of general civil and criminal law. But because these laws are so specific in nature, what is required is someone who comes from a requisite background. So for example, when I was speaking about the National Tariff Commission, the, the body which is positioned over the National Tariff Commission to check and to adjudicate over issues that have arisen with the National Tariff Commission through the process of appeal is the anti-dumping appellate tribunal. Now the prerequisite of sitting in that tribunal is having at least 15 years of trade practice, having degrees in international trade. And they are now sitting to adjudicate trade matters. So if such forums have been provided, the same level of forum has been provided by the Competition Commission through the Appellate Tribunal of the Competition Commission. Uh, these tribunals have been provided to adjudicate matters which have flown in from the National Tariff Commission and the, from the Competition Commission and to ensure that those orders do not need to be altered, they do not need to be amended, they do not need to be rescinded or changed in any manner whatsoever. Above this exists our general court structure, which is an appeal before the Honorable High Court, uh, whichever province you fall in, and of course the Honorable Supreme Court. So there are multiple rounds of litigation that you can go through, but what the beauty of this sector of international trade is that you can poise yourself as either a corporate lawyer or as a uh, litigious lawyer. You have both options. You, you can represent your clients in court and you can represent your clients before the relevant regulator. And this is where that practice comes in. Over and above this exists the bodies which have been created by WTO. So, but you will only engage WTO when a matter is not of national significance, but is of international significance, which means that the dispute ranges between multiple countries and one country or one member state of the WTO is of the opinion that it has not been 
treated fairly. It, the procedures that have been applied in the given investigation are not in the best of favor of that country. And therefore, there exists a dispute settlement body which uh, oversees and adjudicates such matters. So th this was a very small overview. Of course, there's a lot of complexity involved, but uh, th there is a lot of room for young lawyers to step into the international trade sector. The work is very rewarding. Uh, it's not that difficult to understand. And if you are positioned in the right places, uh, access to such bodies is very, very easy. Yeah, I was just going to ask that, you know, uh, for a lawyer that wants to get into this practice, does it matter where they're based? Uh, is it a practice area that exists more in one city like Karachi or Islamabad? Or, or do you think it doesn't make a difference where a person is based? Uh, I think um, th th there is a serious edge to lawyers who are placed out of uh, one of the big cities, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Islamabad has the edge uh, in certain areas because all of the head offices of the regulators are placed out of Islamabad. So the head office of the Competition Commission uh, is in Islamabad, of the National Tariff Commission is in Islamabad, of the TDAP is in Islamabad. Uh, but because the entire financial sector sits out of Karachi, uh, it doesn't matter and you can be sitting out of Karachi. The, the object here is a lawyer can be, you know, lawyers are beyond boundaries, Sarah. Uh, we, we have no boundary when it comes to legal practice. Uh, there can be a dispute, a dispute can arise anywhere. It can, you, you can be sitting in central Punjab or you can be sitting in Larkana or you can be sitting in Quetta. It, it, it doesn't matter as long as, as long as you are engaged in trade or your client. So the most important thing is, where is your client placed out of? And then you can, of course, that lawyer can commute, but otherwise these bodies are available. Most of these bodies do have regional offices and a practice can be created. But yes, of course, if you're sitting in Islamabad or if you're sitting in Karachi or if you're sitting in Lahore, now there is a competitive edge in terms of uh, certain offices that are placed out of Islamabad and Karachi. Okay, and you mentioned, you know, the like trade-specific regulatory authorities. Um, have you ever interacted with like the legal counsel at any of these um, uh, authorities or bodies. I'm, I'm asking again more from like a law career perspective that for someone that wants to get into this practice, but maybe they don't want to go through like the law firm route, um, you know, are there options available to them to work in-house at any of these um, organizations? So just in terms of the regulators that I've named, I'm, I'm very well acquainted with all of their legal counsels. Uh, all of these bodies do have a legal wing. Um, they have legal advisors, either they're in-house or they are on contractual basis, but all of them have legal representation and they have their sub teams working in them. And uh, there are multiple times where you can apply uh, to be uh, drafted into their teams. And uh, it's, it's, it's not that difficult. Um, you, if you are someone who's well acquainted with LinkedIn, uh, most of the times jobs for even the regulators will turn up on LinkedIn or will turn up in ads. So yes, there is, there is a huge possibility. There are, uh, ma mashallah, there are a lot of young individuals, there are a lot of young lawyers who, who are already working for all of these bodies, for the Competition Commission, for the National Tariff Commission, for TDAP, for DGTO, in the Ministry of Commerce, you see a lot of lawyers between the age of 20 and 25 working for these bodies because they were able to apply in them. So 
the, it's not essentially uh, bureaucracy that will enter into it. You don't essentially need to give a CSS exam. Um, now they're incorporating a lot of technocrats because the private sector always has more to offer. There's much more talent out there for the private sector. So if somebody who does not want to come into the legal profession through this route, they can always enter in through the other route, which is directly working for the regulator and uh, own opinion. I think it is, it is fantastic for individuals to first work with the regulator because what that will do is give you brilliant exposure. You will know, you will be extremely well-versed with how the organization works, how do they apply their set procedures, and if and when you decide to come out of that regulator, you will be very well positioned in the market to provide uh, excellent legal services to your clients because you will be very well versed with how the system works. In Pakistan, as a lawyer, it's very important to understand the logistics of entities more than understanding other things. If you understand the logistics of how the organization works, you will be able to find easily find relief and remedy for your client. And that, that is the prime approach for every lawyer to find relief for their client. Yeah, and I think especially for those that want to have their practice early on, um, I think you're right. If you have worked for a regulator, I think it gives you an edge because from a client's perspective, you know, you might be better suited to cater to the client's issues. You also mentioned, Sharukh, you know, in the beginning that, you know, you started out as an associate at a firm where, you know, one of the partners spe specialized in the area. So I just want to talk a little bit about just legal skills that as a first year or a second year associate at such a firm, what kind of work can one expect to get? And now that you're a partner, and I'm sure you delegate work as well, what sort of work do you expect or do you rely on a, a junior associate to do, again, specific to uh, the trade practice? I'll break this down between two portions. So I'll break this down in terms of hiring and what, what are the things that we look at um, when we do interviews and what are we looking at when we are taking that decision to hire someone or not to hire someone as an intern, as a paralegal, as a trainee associate, as a junior associate, anything which is below the mark of an associate or potentially an associate. So, uh, and then the second part will of course be once we've hired them, what is our expectation for work and what the quality of work do we expect? So at, at the time when we're hiring someone who has below one year experience or generally associate is the starting bar but now, because more positions have come in, the starting bar for any organization is either an internship or a junior associate position. When we're hiring such individuals, we're looking at, I expressly look at five things. The first thing is your, of course, it's very, very important, your academic background. Uh, by academic background, we're trying to see whether you're a foreign qualified lawyer, whether you're a locally qualified lawyer, where have you done your degree from, is the institution a recognized institution? In case we have found that the institution is a credible institution, it's well-recognized, we can, we can see where it is. Then the second thing is, of course, how did you perform during your degree? Uh, it is not to reflect legal acumen at this point, but it is just there to reflect. Your grades will reflect the effort you have put into your degree. And it shows a way of thinking and it shows a way of performance that someone who has worked hard during their degree, how seriously do they take themselves? Then the third thing that we see in interview is you know, the zeal or the push or the level of ambition that exists in someone as a young lawyer to change their circumstances, to be recognized as a professional and how seriously, again, do they take themselves uh, when it comes to this profession? This is a very honorable and respectable profession. Um, 
and it's it's not cut out for everyone. Even though there are hundreds and thousands of people who are graduating, that doesn't mean all of those lawyers will will make make the mark. Uh, it's only a few great people who will be able to make that mark, but only if they have that understanding from day one. Then the fourth thing, which is very important, is attitude. We are looking at how we are looking at your demeanor. We by demeanor we are looking at how you're dressed, how well you're poised, how well do you present yourself, because it again reflects a state of mind. It reflects how you want to be for your client, because this is a respectable profession. And this is a profession for the educated lot. We expect you to take yourself seriously. We want you to dress the part. We want you to look the part. Um, this is where, again, if anybody needs inspiration, start watching Suits. It's a great inspiration. Um, a little that, unrealistic, though. <laughs> very, very unrealistic, other than the Suits part. But uh, other than that, very unrealistic. And, <laughs> and lastly, uh, we are willing, uh, the last thing we are willing to see in, in a potential candidate is the commitments they are willing to make. What are they willing to put on the table? What are they able to reflect when it comes to an interview? And what are they willing to tell us when we ask this very simple question, why should I hire you? And this is a, an area where I see young lawyers really, really struggling because they don't know what to say. And generally the answer that we're looking for is commitment. Uh, in law firms, especially in heritage law firms, which, which have been in practice for over 10 years or 20 years, we, we, we are not looking for someone who is only going to come here and work for three months or six months or one year. And uh, as soon as they feel that uh, they are not an infant lawyer anymore, uh, and then you know they, they, they have blossomed into a butterfly, they, they want to run away. We are looking for people who are willing to put in the time and are there for a long-term commitment. So the time that they're willing to give us, because this is an entire process where if you enter a law firm, we are here to mentor you. We are here to teach you certain skills. And what we call this is an asset and liability curve. So when you start your career off, you're a liability for the people you're working for. And then through your hard work, your determination, your zeal, you convert yourself into an asset for that organization. And we want you to work for us when you're an asset. And we also want you to work for us when you're a liability. We understand both of them are part and parcel of what you do. So these are the things we look at um, when you're going to get hired at one of the premium firms. Once you are hired, what is the expectation when it comes to trade? So uh, I, I am generally looking at, so the day of one of my junior associates will go about in this manner where we have deliverables. Um, there are assignments. Those assignments are broken into two parts. There are assignments on research and then there are assignments on drafting. I expect my team or I expect my associates or the most junior of my associates to be able to draft a particular contention. So if it comes to legal drafting, what I want you to do is that they should be well versed with places where they can find uh, case law, uh, places or platforms where they can find credible information. And then the second part is application of that credible information. It has to be put on paper. Uh, a lawyer is, is, is nothing if they, are, if they are not able to draft a particular contention. What we are here to then see is that we need to give your thought legal direction. Uh, as a mentor or as a senior, that's what we're looking to correct. But in a general day, you will be, if you're working in trade, I will be asking you to look into competition matters which are happening in the US, competition matters which are happening 
worldwide, uh, if you are doing a trade related, a trade remedy related assignment, I want you to tell me on a daily basis, uh, what are the trade prices of metal today? How are commodities being traded? What is going on in your stock exchange? And from there, you, these are a lot of factors. There are a lot of websites now on which you can ably go and find information with respect to trade. What is happening in the pharmaceutical sector? What is happening in the chemical sector? Because if you know what is happening in the sectors, you will be, again, you will be better positioned to advise your clients. Your clients, which are public limited or private limited companies are looking not only for legal acumen, but they're looking for forward thinking people. They're looking for people who will not only advise them on a specific issue, but will be able to provide general advice when it comes to their particular sector. So if I'm representing in, in trade law, if I'm representing someone in the steel sector, they expect me to know what is the price of steel, whether it is by rod, whether it is a CC billet, whether it is um, a cold rolled coil, whether it is tin plate. So now what you'll see is lawyers have gone over and above that place where they're only looking uh, into a particular law and they're only looking at a legal book. Lawyers are now very practical people who have industry specific understanding. They understand how sectors work and then they apply that understanding to law and then they're able to best advise their clients. You know, Sharukh, you mentioned earlier um, that when, you know, somebody comes in, uh, you know, as a candidate, you kind of look at their education background. Do you think that, you know, there are strengths and weaknesses for whether, you know, you are a Pakistani law graduate or a foreign qualified uh, lawyer? Again, the reason why I'm asking is that just from my experience, you know, based on the conversations I've had, a lot of Pakistani law graduates, they feel that many corporate law firms, they give, they don't hire them or they give priority to foreign qualified lawyers. I don't necessarily agree with it as a blanket statement. I think, yes, there was a divide and it has, you know, changed over time. But I'm curious to know what, you know, your perspective is. Um, what are the advantages that that both types of uh, lawyers have coming into a firm again that specializes in in trade law? So let let me let me break it uh, down in this simple manner. I, I feel that there is no difference uh, at the outset when we're hiring someone. There is no difference between whether they have acquired a foreign education or they have acquired a local education. The difference that comes in is in attitude. Uh, that is what we're trying to see. And that is where the difference actually lies. I feel both sectors or both places where people qualify from have different advantages and different disadvantages. So as you know, looking at, at the very outset, somebody who has done their local degree, if, if they have been, uh, you know, if they have been educated from a university like Beria, or if they've come in from Islamic university or Punjab university, they actually have the edge. And why do they have the edge? Because they, they have always been educated in the local law. So an example is that if somebody who has done his local degree, he will know what the Companies Act 2017 is because that's the law that he has read and that is the law for which he has given examinations. Whereas a student who has come in from England uh, knows about the Companies Act 2013 of England and Wales. So their understanding is very difficult. And in fact, um, I feel uh, that foreign graduates because I was a foreign graduate, I had a serious handicap knowing that because I'm foreign educated, I'm not educated in the local laws. And it, it in fact took me a much longer time to adapt myself and uh, to come to an understanding of the local laws. Because what is happening is that in 
implementation the local laws are taking uh, you know are superseding international laws of course if we were sitting in pakistan so i was talking about anti dumping so the anti dumping law uh, is for me the more relevant law would be the anti dumping law of pakistan rather than the anti dumping law of england and wales the competition act of pakistan is more relevant to me than the other one the trade organization act of pakistan is more relevant than the english law so in fact foreign graduates have a handicap but what happens is this is now a difference in attitude that certain people are willing to put in a certain level of impetus to get to a certain place in their career uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a foreign graduate or a local graduate uh, that is not the bar for entering a place the bar for entering a place is legal acumen legal reasoning attitude so these are all external factors that uh, mashallah either a pakistani graduate can have or a foreign graduate can have so i i don't feel that as a blanket statement this would be correct that foreign graduates get prevalence no they don't but but there is one preference that if if a student has done his masters that means he has one more year of education over someone who has done an llb whether that llb has been done through the external program the local program or in a foreign country so yes somebody who does their bar somebody who does their lpc or somebody who does their masters yes that person will get obviously because they are higher up in in the chain when it comes to educational certifications and accreditations but otherwise there is one now just on a concluding note um, i mean i think you've given some great advice and just in time with the summers coming up and so many law students would be making that transition from student life to work life now that they're uh, finishing up with their law degree uh but anything else any tips or any other parting advice uh that you want to give to our listeners so just just in terms of summing up uh what what i would want to tell uh, people is whether they're at their educational stage or or later uh, be humble uh please understand the circumstances in which you which you are uh in which you exist it is a very competitive market out there there are thousands of graduates that are coming out every year and there are only a limited amount of spots i mean um, law firms even when they are hiring will not hire in one go will not hire more than 5 or 10 individuals whereas in one batch you will produce hundreds of law graduates so you need to be able to understand and appreciate what will set you apart what is going to make a difference make a great first impression i see a lot of young graduates who are coming in um, i conduct interviews i've conducted over 100 or 200 interviews where uh, the people have just clearly the the young lawyer has clearly failed to impress us in any manner whatsoever uh, just by their demeanor just by the way that they're answering questions and there's a serious lack of uh, seriousness when it comes to coming to an interview when it comes to working in an organization or when it comes to taking yourself seriously as a lawyer as a professional as an individual as someone who tenders advice um, i i was advised by one of my uh, seniors in a firm that i had worked earlier that um, and that that said lawyer i'm not going to name him uh, he's over the age of 66 and he's i believe he's around 65 67 and he said charuk till date when i issue an opinion to a client whether it is for 10000 rupees or whether it's for you know 10 million rupees my hands tremble because i know that this person or this individual will do exactly what i'm telling them to do so 
if anything wrong happens the entire responsibility will rest on my shoulders so please take yourself seriously please take your advice seriously uh, please take this profession seriously and if you are such an individual and you and you do these little steps your career will be much much more progressive than your counterparts and and don't look at others look at yourself so rather than looking at others introspect look look into yourself look into your ability and try to enhance your own skill set take every opportunity that comes your way um, the, that is just better yourself uh sharuk before i let you go uh for anyone that's listening that wants to get in touch with you can you share any web links or any social media if you're active on any of the platforms yeah so i i'm already on linkedin um, i i go by sharuk iftikhar uh, i'll also um, if if some if there are any specific questions if there's anything coming in anyone's mind um, my email address is sharuk@absco.pk um, you feel free to email me feel free to dm me on linkedin um i i i would be more than happy to answer any questions whether they are with respect to trade whether they are respect to jobs um just in terms of general advice as well i would be more than happy uh to offer any sort of help that any young lawyer or even an, any other lawyer requires so uh, feel free to shoot out a message great uh thanks a lot sharuk for taking the time out for the podcast honestly i've learned uh, a lot about the 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 practice area myself um so i'm sure the listeners found this incredibly helpful um so yeah thank you for taking the time out uh sara thank you very much uh, for inviting me having me as a as a guest uh, i i really hope i w- i was helpful to someone and uh, i i really look forward to doing uh these podcasts if they're on other issues as well and once again thank you very much for inviting thank you yeah abs- absolutely would love to have you on again and thank you to everyone else for tuning in please do subscribe to the bard law podcast um if you have any comments or feedback um the email is in the description so please feel free to reach out uh, also share this with fellow lawyers and law students in your network